You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us today of your great love for us and preparing a place for us in heaven. And I do pray that as we consider your truth for this hour, that it would make us more fit to live heaven out here on earth now, to bring a bit of eternity into our present experience. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert E. Lee was visiting a lady in Kentucky after the Civil War. And Lee's hostess took him out into her front yard, and there, through bitter tears, she recounted how the stump that was in front of them had once been a magnificent tree, but federal artillery had rid it of its limbs and riddled its trunk. She waited, expecting some word of condemnation of the Union forces which had destroyed her tree and her culture and to a great extent had deprived her of life as she had loved it. And if she could not elicit some word of condemnation from General Lee, perhaps he would sympathize with her. General Lee finally said, Cut it down, dear madam, and forget it. I agree with Lewis Smeads that some people, probably the great minority of people, are endowed with gracious glands that secrete forgetfulness when it comes to wrongs which have been aimed their way. But if the truth were known, most of us present today are more like this lady from Kentucky after the Civil War. We are like a nursing mother who coddle and fondle our grudges until they grow full-blown into bitter resentment toward those people who have offended us. But the Bible teaches us that love offers us a more excellent way. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And I want us to look at one part of one verse of 1 Corinthians 13. We'll pick up where we left off last Sunday. If you'll look at the last sentence in verse 5, it says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is the more excellent way which love presents to you and me. It's the alternative to our becoming bitter and resentful toward people who have offended us. That's true, isn't it? That we live in a world where we get hurt. And let me pause here just a moment. I think it would be helpful for us to identify those things which we often confuse with hurts which require forgiveness. For instance, annoyances are not hurts which require our forgiving other people. It's like when I go to the grocery store and have one item I want to purchase and all of a sudden a person 
cuts in front of me in the express lane and has 15 items when eight is the limit. Does that ever happen to you? That is an annoyance, isn't it? But it is not something that requires our forgiving the person who has annoyed us. Another thing which does not qualify as a hurt requiring our forgiveness are slights we receive. Slights are normally unintentional. Slights such as a group of people whom you normally associate with have a get-together and they leave you out. I'll never forget as a boy the impression that was made upon me by a couple who were friends with my parents. There were probably half a dozen couples who enjoyed getting together for fellowship. They were all Christians, all attended the same church. But occasionally, one couple would invite maybe two couples and leave a third couple out. And this particular couple would become so offended. There was nothing of malice in their being left out. It was merely a slight, an oversight. That does not require forgiveness in the sense that the Bible speaks of it. Then there are disappointments the kind of disappointment that some of you who have adult children have experienced. They've left the nest, and you had contributed so much to their lives. They're out on their own now, and they really don't pay as much attention to you as you would like them to pay attention to you. So these things do not qualify as hurts requiring forgiveness. Then what are the characteristics of hurts requiring forgiveness. There are three aspects of a hurt which qualifies it for requiring forgiveness. The first, and perhaps the most important, is that it must be personal. Now, if you live long enough, chances are you will be hurt by someone whom you counted on to be your friend. That someone may be a parent, a parent who abuses you or abused you physically, by walloping the daylights out of you, not necessarily because he was angry at you, but because he was just mad at the world. Something was really getting under his skin in another area of his life, and you as a non-threatening child, one whom he had responsibility over and power over, he was able to do that to you. Some of you are here this morning who have been abused or perhaps are currently being abused by this kind of father or mother. And then there's the kind of parent who would never think of abusing her child or his child with a hand or with a stick or a belt, but who abuses that child emotionally over and over again. Who says to that child, you'll never amount to nothing, you dummy. Can't you get it right? Won't you ever grow up? Won't you ever assume responsibility in your life? Now, there's probably not a parent here today who's not guilty of saying that at least once. I hope not, because I've said those kinds of things, maybe not exactly those kinds, but similar things that must have been like arrows piercing into the spirit and wounding the spirit of my son and my daughter. Perhaps you have been personally hurt by a brother who teased you unmercifully. I mean, it gave him great delight to tease you, but it didn't do much good for you. Or maybe you had a sister who was older than you and you were being picked on by all the neighborhood children. And during that period of time, you expected that older sibling to support you and defend you. 
but instead that child just turned and walked away or kept silent and didn't come to your defense. Maybe you had a friend who let you down or a sweetheart who jilted you sometime in the past or a spouse who seems to delight in savaging you by putting you down in front of other people in public. The spouse doesn't have the integrity or the courage to bring those things up in the privacy of your own home. Or maybe you have a spouse who says that she loves you but treats you with great indifference as a husband not really ministering to your needs as you see them at least. Or maybe you have a spouse who's been unfaithful to you and has wounded you. I repeat, for there to be a hurt which requires forgiveness, first of all, there must be a close personal relationship. Have you ever noticed that a stranger can do something to you? It may make you mad, but it does not make you resentful. Let your spouse or your child or your parent or your brother or your sister or your pastor or your friend or your brother or sister in Christ do the same thing to you. And it hurts you very deeply. You had that experience in your life? Another dimension of the hurt which requires forgiveness is that it's unfair. There are three ways in which hurts are unfair. One is when one whom we expect to be our friend, one to whom we are closely bound by some sort of promise, is disloyal to us. When someone belongs to me and treats me like a stranger, that person has hurt me. It's like when a dad can't take it anymore in his family and he just leaves his children and that hurts a child very deeply. It's like when a son lies to his parents about his whereabouts or about his goings-on when in reality that son should have a bond to his parents, a sense of fidelity to his parents. Another way in which we are treated unfairly is by betrayal. And betrayal is when someone belongs to me but acts like my enemy, treats me as his or her enemy. And a final aspect of the unfairness of a hurt that requires forgiveness is brutality. A husband beats his wife, mistreats his children, sexually abuses his daughter. This, needless to say, is unfair treatment hurt that requires forgiveness. And finally, and this really doesn't require much explanation at all, a hurt that requires forgiveness not only has the dimension of the personal and the unfair, but also of the deep. It goes deep down into our soul, even into our spirit. It hurts us. We as people who live in a world where we tend to get hurt also are people who are given to resentment. We incubate our hurts in the oven of resentment. Do you ever do that? Is there anybody here who's ever nursed a grudge? Think about the very phraseology which we use. We talk about holding a grudge. When you hold on to something, it's there, isn't it? It actually becomes a part of you. It's only when you let loose of a grudge that you really are healed. Why do we hold grudges? Because in the first place, resentment is rewarding. And you say, how in the world can you say that? Because nothing is quite as satisfying to the human ego as dwelling on our own hurts. We get great, and it's sort of a 
sadistic kind of pleasure, but nevertheless, we do get great pleasure from describing the hurts we have received from others to sympathetic friends because in so doing, we show ourselves to be in the right. We justify ourselves. This makes us feel superior to our offenders. It makes us look great when we're able to do this in sharing the offenses others have lodged against us to a sympathetic friend. Resentment is also rewarding because it gives us excuses to indulge in exotic plots for revenge. You've done it before, perhaps. As you lay in bed unable to go to sleep, you begin to think about all the hurts that came your way. And then you begin to hatch plots as how you can get back at the people who have hurt you and offended you. While you're driving in your car and you're caught in a traffic jam, your mind fixates on that person who has offended you. And you think of ways that you can get back at that person. You even do it while listening to sermons on love and forgiveness. We want those who offend us to hurt enough to satisfy us. That's why we hold on to the grudges. That's why we won't let people loose. That's why we hold people hostage. There's great hazard in holding grudges. First of all, we run the risk of not being forgiven ourselves. Turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter. And let's look at verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, does this mean that the way a person gets into heaven is by forgiving all the people who have forgiven her? Is that what that means? Absolutely not. There's only one way a person can get to the holy city, which Vanda sang about earlier today, and that's through Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is that if you and I insist upon holding grudges, we should be very wary of what we call saving faith in our own lives. Because the person who really and truly is born from God and has eternal life is a person who has inbred in her nature or his nature the ability and the desire to forgive those who have offended. So you and I need to be very careful when we find ourselves brooding over the offenses which have come our way. Maybe that's a warning signal from the Holy Spirit that we really haven't been saved to begin with. Maybe it's an occasion for us to evaluate what we're trusting in for eternal life to begin with. Randy read from Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. That's an amazing parable, isn't it? Here was a man who was indebted to his master to the tune of $10 million. Now, Jesus chose an incredible amount of money to make his point. For you see, in that day and time, the total tax revenue from the five provinces of Palestine, the province of Idumea and Judea and Perea and Samaria and Galilee, only totaled to $800,000 a year. 
But Jesus uses this illustration to drive home the point that God, who is represented by this merciful master, is one who forgives seven times 70, who forgives over and over again. We read with Randy how this man came to his master and he said, Master, be patient with me. And what that means is extend my credit is really what he's saying because he goes on to say, until I have enough money to pay you back. Give me time. Isn't that ridiculous? A man who may have made 20 cents a day thinking that he sometime in his lifetime could pay a master that kind of debt. And he really didn't hear what the master was saying, did he? Because the master said, I cancel your debt. You don't have to pay it back. And the next thing we know, he's out on the street. He runs into a man who owes him 100 denarii the equivalent of $20, and he grabs him by the neck and he says, I'm going to choke you until you give me your money. In fact, if you can't give me the money you owe me, I'm going to pitch you into prison. And Jesus goes on to say, when we have that kind of heartlessness in our lives, we don't forgive our brother from our heart. And that's where forgiveness has to begin, in our heart. Then we're no child of his. No child of his. It is hazardous, I repeat, not to forgive. We grieve God's Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 is in the context of forgiveness and bitterness and malice and anger. And what you and I do if we refuse to forgive is that we grieve the Spirit of God. We break God's Spirit's heart. Perhaps the reason that God has not really broken through in your life can be traced to the fact that you are harboring a bitter, resentful spirit towards someone. And it only has to be one person. It doesn't have to be a bunch of folks. It could be just one individual whom you have refused to forgive. It's dangerous to our own spiritual health. Eileen Guter says, the unforgiving spirit is like a boomerang which returns to us to deal a deadly blow. Dr. David Belgum has written a book which he suggests that 75% of the people who occupy beds in hospitals in America are there because of emotional disturbances. And he says a great deal of their emotional disturbance is related to their inability or refusal to let go of hurts which others have leveled against them. He says their sickness is their involuntary confession of guilt for not having said, I forgive you for having hurt me and attacked me. Now, what is the solution to an unforgiving spirit? Very simply, it's God's love. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that beautiful? Paul chose a bookkeeping term. He used the term which was a part of the accounting world of his day, when an accountant would enter a figure on the ledger, it was entered there for safekeeping, and I might add it was entered there for permanent safekeeping, so it could be referred to over and over again. Now, keeping a ledger is absolutely necessary and healthy in businesses. But keeping a ledger of wrongs, keeping a scorecard of people who have wronged us is absolutely wrong for us, and it will kill us. It will quench the Spirit of God and keep us as individuals or as a church from being what we could otherwise be.
God's love is our model. I want you to turn to Ephesians 4. I think it's appropriate that we're considering this matter of forgiveness on Palm Sunday. Traditionally, the day which commemorates our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem where He was soon to be crucified for our sins. Let's look at verse 32, the last verse of Ephesians 4. To get some kind of idea as to what God's love is like. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How did God forgive you in Jesus Christ? He forgave you when you didn't deserve it, didn't He? There are people in your life who have offended you who don't deserve to be forgiven. But God's love demands that we forgive those who don't deserve to be forgiven. Once our eyes are open to the greatness of our own sin, then it tends to dwarf the offenses which others have leveled against us. And if we are not willing to admit that, if we're not willing to really see the enormity of our sin in light of the cross of Jesus when he died for us when we didn't deserve it, he even took the blame for our sins. He actually stood in our place on Calvary that day. When we are unable to acknowledge that, then we minimize our own sinfulness. My friend... The surest way for you to forgive someone who's offended you is to always keep your mind on the cross of Jesus Christ. Remembering what great lengths He has gone to to purchase your forgiveness and to set you free from the bondage of sin. Rather than count our sin against us, God forgot it. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And the term which is translated moved from us was also used in Hebrew to describe a mother taking a damp cloth and wiping the grime off of her dirty child's face. That's what God has done for you and me when he died on the cross. And when we think of his great love and forgiveness in that context, then it begins to shame us, or at least it should, for our refusal to let go of the deep hurts, the personal hurts, the unfair hurts, which other people have aimed our way. Now, when I speak of God's forgiving us, what I mean is that he totally forgets it. The Bible tells us that he has wiped it away. It's gone out of his memory. He's buried it in the deepest sea of his remembrance. And the only entry in the Lamb's book of life beside your name or my name in heaven is righteous. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus went to the wall for us. Jesus became sin on our behalf in order that we might be made right with God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Isn't that amazing? Now let me stop here and ask you this question. 
Does God forget the way we forget when we forget where we put our keys? Of course not. God doesn't have amnesia. To say God has forgotten our sin is to say he feels about us the way he would feel if he had forgotten. And the same is true for you and me. Perhaps you've wrestled with forgiving someone and this idea keeps surfacing of how you were hurt. Don't doubt the genuineness of your forgiveness just because you remember it. Just because it happens to surface again. May I share with you how you'll know if you've really forgiven someone? If you've really forgiven someone who's hurt you deeply and personally, then you can begin to wish that person well. Myra Broger was an aspiring and beautiful young actress earlier in this decade in Hollywood. She was married to a TV and film star, and she was a hit-and-run victim that left her crippled. Soon after she had recovered from this crippling accident, her husband left her. She was being interviewed by a Christian ethicist and asked if she had come to the place where she had really forgiven her husband. And she says, I think I have. And the man said, how do you know that you've really forgiven him? She says, I think I know because I've gotten to the place where I'm beginning to wish him well. You see, that is typical of the person who forgives another. That person is able not necessarily to forget the hurt, but to wish the person well and not to nurse the grudge anymore. Now God forgets completely, and God does something remarkable. He reconciles the offender to himself. And this is where we often fall short. To really forgive is to draw the person who was close to us once before back to our bosom and to love that person again. Even sometimes when that person won't admit that he or she has really wronged us, when the person is not totally repentant. And that's where our forgiveness differs somewhat from God's because God must require repentance on the part of someone who has offended him by sinning, whereas sometimes we can't force the hand of those who have offended us, but we're to bring them back. God forgives those who are hard to forgive. Is there any sinner who isn't hard to forgive, do you think? What did your sin cost God? It cost him the death of his dear son, his only son. Who are our hard-to-forgive people? Some of them are invisible. Some of them are invisible because they're dead. Some of you hold resentment today toward a parent who is dead. A parent who did not love you with God's love. And the problem is that parent's gone. It's tough now, isn't it? I mean, the parent's gone. You can't hug that parent after you've explained your hurt to her. And she said, I'm sorry. And she can't say, I'm sorry, because she's no longer here. And some of you are even feeling guilty. And some of you are even saying, no, no, there's no way that my parent has hurt me that deeply. You're holding that thought at arm's distance. But what you and I need to realize is that parents aren't perfect. They made mistakes just like you've made mistakes with your children. 
They need forgiving just like you need forgiving for the mishandling of your children, the misappropriating of God's love in your life just like you've misappropriated God's love in their lives. And then perhaps the hardest person for you and me to forgive is you or myself. There's people here this morning who hate themselves. And your pain is directly related to the pain you caused someone else. You lied to someone whom you thought trusted you. You neglected a child when a child needed you the most. You were unfaithful to a friend. If God's forgiven you, and if you've confessed your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you. If He's forgiven you, then you can be sure you can forgive yourself. And that will free you to really be who God wants you to be. Now let me be quick to say this. Some people want wholesale forgiveness for just being themselves. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever woken up someday and you said, God, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry for being me. Is there anybody here who's had that experience? I've had that experience. Do you know what that is? That's not humility. That is pride. That's the kind of pride which says, I want to be a God. It's the kind of pride typical of John Quincy Adams, one of our earliest presidents. He was a good president. He wasn't a great president, but he was a good president. There was no scandal attached to his administration. But as he was about to die, he said, I have accomplished nothing. It's the kind of pride that's typified by a man who was the father of modern international law on his deathbed. He, he said, I have accomplished nothing worthwhile in my life. Hugo Grotius was his name. Now, God's love is our model. But God's love is our power, too. And this is the good news. Few of us have the power in ourselves to throw away the scorecards we've been keeping on our wives or on our husbands or on our bosses or on our friends. It's tough, isn't it? We cry out, it's just not human to forgive the kind of personal, unfair, deep hurts I have experienced in my life. It is something I can't do. Now, the disciples knew this. They felt it. In Luke 17, Jesus told them to forgive a person up to seven times a day. And seven, as you well know, is the number of perfection. What he was saying was, forgive people an infinite number of times. And then there comes that famous remark that they made, which is often spoken out of context. Do you remember what they said? Increase our faith.